going to take the next step in our conversation on our topic for the weekend, which is generally speaking cross-cultural love, and we are going to get into the book of Matthew again, the gospel of Matthew, and we're going to look at chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Now, I'm going to warn you in advance, this one gets a little hot. It gets a little heavy. It gets a little real. So, um, so tonight, I want to encourage all of us to really open our hearts and, and ask the Lord to search us and to direct us, just like was prayed before uh, I stepped up here, that we would really lean in this evening. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Verses 31 through 46. This is God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked. And you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you give us your word for our good so that we may have life so that we may live the life of flourishing in this world. You give us your word in all of its parts for our good. 
And Lord, even, that's even true for the hard parts. And we pray that tonight, this difficult word uh, would awaken us. We pray that it would be like the smelling salts that brings us to really deal with the most urgent matters of life. We ask that you would work change in our hearts as we hear your word. We pray that the spirit would go out with the word and accomplish what you send it for. Lord, we pray that the seed that is scattered would fall on good soil and would produce a crop 30, 60, even 100 fold. Bless us as we sit under your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a television show on not too many years ago called Undercover Boss. Any of you remember that? Yeah, that's not me. Um, there was a show called Undercover Boss. And if you're not familiar with the show, the is there something we should do before I get rolling? My beard is not guilty. <laughs> Look, I'm not moving. I'm a church planter. I'm used to this kind of stuff. Um, so I'm easy, but if there's anything you know you want to do. Okay. All right, then. Here we go. <laughs> so this show, Undercover Boss, if you're not familiar, the basic idea of the show is this. We follow various corporate executives as they go undercover in their own businesses that they lead, that they created. And in each episode, there is this, this progression that takes place. The first thing that happens is we're introduced to the executive. He or she is shown to us in all of the authority of their position. We are exposed to them in all of their stature. We learn how they built their business, how, how they developed it. We, we see them in all of their greatness. And then the show takes us. Is there a handheld I can use? Yeah, thanks. Awesome. cover in their business. Now, for the employees of their business, this is just another ordinary day. They're treating people the way they usually treat people. They're doing their work the way they usually do their work. And all the while, they have no idea that they're coming into contact with the undercover boss. But the entirety of the show builds toward the climax where the undercover boss is revealed for each of the employees. And at that moment, 
It is a, a startling reality for these employees because the executive brings them each into his office and he reveals himself to them. And the first thing you can see as the shock is hitting them is, is, is the question is going through their mind. What did I do with the undercover boss? <laughs> did I treat him right? Did I act up? Like, what did I do? And at this point, there are no reruns. There's no turning back the clock. There are no do-overs. And the boss, who was undercover, at that point, he distributes rewards and bonuses to the faithful employees. And to the unfaithful employees, he terminates them. Now, I think we could say that our lives in this world are much like an episode of the undercover boss. The scriptures reveal Jesus to us in all of his glory. We see him in all of his majesty and his stature. We see him in all of his goodness and greatness. We see who he really is in the scriptures. But I think what we often fail to realize is that he has gone undercover into the world that he, he has created. He's gone undercover. And we're just doing what we do every day. We're working the way that we work. We're treating people the way that we usually treat people. And all the while, we have no idea that we're coming into contact with the undercover boss. But the entirety of human history is driving toward a climax. It's driving toward the climactic moment when Jesus will be once again revealed in all his glory when he returns. And at that point, when we are confronted with Jesus, the main question is going to be going through our heads is, how did I treat the undercover boss? What did I do with him? And at that point, there will be no reruns. There will be no do-overs. There will be no take-backs. And at that point, Jesus will dispense his reward and his, and his entrance into his kingdom to those who have been faithful. And he will pour out his judgment on those who have been unfaithful. And so tonight, what I would like to do is help all of us to prepare for that day. I don't know how long you have been going to church. I don't know how long you would self-identify as a Christian. But what I know is that throughout the scriptures, the emphasis is not on past things that you have done. It's always today is the day of salvation. It's about who I am and what I'm doing with Jesus right now. And that is what we are encouraged to put our attention to as we live life in this world. And so I want to challenge us to prepare for the final day by seeing the urgency of cross-cultural love, the urgency of reconciliation. And I want to hit this through two points. We're going to see the comfort in God's judgment and the challenge in God's judgment. The comfort in God's judgment and the challenge in God's judgment. So let's look at our first point, the comfort in God's judgment. Now here's the context of our passage for tonight. This is three days before Jesus will go to the cross to bear the sins of his people. Three days before his suffering. And, and what Jesus is doing now is he's preparing his disciples 
for their lives in the world. He's preparing them for what's ahead. And before he gives himself over to the injustice of the authorities, he lays down this powerful teaching, this powerful vision for his disciples in our passage for tonight. And if you look at verses 31 through 33, this is what he says. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. When most people that you encounter from day to day think about Jesus, they probably think about the meek and lowly Jesus. They probably think about the Jesus who was so poor he had no place to lay his head. They think about the Jesus that was near to the broken, who was humble, meek, and lowly of heart. And that's one picture of Jesus. That's one side to Jesus. But there's another side to Jesus. Theologians call this the status duplex, the two states of Christ. Christ in his humiliation, that's the first picture. But then there's Christ in his exaltation, and that is the picture that is being given to us in this passage. Jesus is saying there is another side that the world is going to see of me. But what you have to appreciate is that Jesus is making an allusion to the book of Daniel chapter 7. And, and he's, he's, he's sort of transporting some of the language of that scene. And he's trying to draw out a picture, a draw out a connection for his disciples. And if you're not familiar with the book of Daniel chapter 7, this is the passage that Jesus is referencing. It reads like this, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10 and verses 13 through 14. It says this, Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." And Jesus is saying, that passage is referring to me. That judgment scene, that scene of glory, that scene of one who is going to sit on a throne and judge, that is a picture of me. It's an exalted picture. It's a reminder to these disciples that they should not be deceived by the glory that is veiled right now. He will come in glory. He is the king. He will judge. He's, he's going to deal with the world as it is. And it was not surprising for these disciples to hear that God's judgment was coming. This was not surprising. But it's hard to put into words how, how good this news was to them. What a comfort it was to these disciples to know that God was going to judge. This was good news to them. Because the Jews 
were under the oppressive power of the Roman Empire. They were a marginalized people. They were squeezed. They were ground under the wheel of the, of the Roman power. And they were longing for the day that God would deal with the injustice of the Roman Empire and would vindicate his people. They longed for that day. Nothing could have made these disciples more happy or hopeful than the idea that judgment was coming. And like we said earlier today, this, this idea of judgment is difficult for people in our contemporary context. And it sounds pretty strange in our ears that there were people who were actually longing for the day of judgment. That sounds strange to us. The last thing we want to talk about is judgment. But that raises a question. Why were these ancient people looking forward to it? Why did they see God's judgment as good news and we don't want to hear about it? I think there are a few things to lay out in terms of the difference between the ancient and modern views. The view of the Jews and our contemporary views in late modernity. The first is this. Ancient people and Christians throughout time and around the globe have always understood that judgment and justice are two sides of the same coin. If you're going to have justice, there must be judgment. If in order to establish the right and abolish the wrong, God must judge. And these disciples were encouraged about the certainty of cosmic judgment because they knew that it would result in cosmic justice. Rome was against them, but God would set the world right. It was good news to them because it showed them that God cared about the powerless. That God cares about those who have been marginalized unjustly. God cares about those who are weak and vulnerable, who are being taken advantage of in society. God cares about them, and God will one day make that right. The second thing is this. Most of us, why do we struggle with just judgment? Because we don't see that it is a part of justice. It's, it's intimately bound to justice. The second reason why we don't like to hear about judgment it's because most of us don't appreciate the historic and global difficulty of enduring a corrupt justice system. I like the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis puts it in a quote in a very succinct way. He says this. In most places and times, it has been very difficult for the small man to get his case heard. The judge has to be bribed. If you can't afford to oil his palm, your case will never reach court. Our judges do not receive bribes. We need not therefore be surprised if the Psalms and the prophets and all the scriptures are full of the longing for judgment and regard the announcement that judgment is coming as good news. Hundreds and thousands of people who have been stripped of all they possess and who have the right entirely on their side will at last be heard. They know their case is unanswerable. If only it could be heard. When God comes to judge, at last it will. Their case will be heard. Third reason. The third reason for the, the difference between our situation and the ancients is this. 
that's related to the previous two. If we have a hard time hearing the message that God is going to judge, it's likely because we are culturally blinded by our privileged situation. Those who sit in positions of privilege don't need, they're not desperate for God to judge and make things right. If you've never faced evil, heinous wickedness, then of course you don't sense the need for judgment. But you sit and make that determination from a position of relative privilege because your life has been pretty shielded. I've often said to my people when they struggle with the idea of judgment, I ask them, if you were to go and talk to some of the victims of Boko Haram and tell them that you can't believe in a God who judges, can you imagine what they would say to you? If you could be transported to Germany during World War II and you were to tell a Jew that God is not going to judge that evil, you can't believe in a God of judgment, what, what could you imagine they would say to you? Countless victims from around the world who had experienced some of the most heinous evil, they are the ones that are most in touch with the way things are and the way things need to be. They are longing for justice and judgment. And it's those of us who haven't really had to think about that who feel free to discard the idea of judgment. But this points out to us the, important of cross, the importance of cross-cultural community for us to see truth. We need the global community of Christians to help us to see clearly, particularly on this issue. This is why cross-cultural community is important. It's one other reason why. But here's the question. Why does it matter? Why does any of this matter? We need to look at the second point. The challenge of God's judgment. The comfort of God's judgment comes to those who are being squashed and squeezed and broken and marginalized. It's good news to those folks. And we should be able to hold out that good news to them that God will make it right. God will bring justice and flourishing and shalom. But there's a challenge in this message, and it comes through powerfully in our passage. I wanted to frame that up. So let's look at our passage in verses 33 through 40. Here's the brief layout. Jesus is going to come as king, and he is going to gather all the nations, all the peoples together. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he's going to make a pronouncement over their lives. He's going to extend welcome to the sheep, and he is going to lay his judgment upon the goats. And what we notice in this passage is something very interesting, right? We notice that neither the sheep nor the goats express surprise at the fact of judgment, nor the place assigned to them. But they are surprised at the reason that the Son of Man gives for the assignment. That they are admitted or excluded from the kingdom on the basis of how they treated Jesus. They simply had no idea that they were encountering Jesus every day in the people around them. They didn't know, the sheep didn't know that when they were doing good to others, they were doing good to Jesus. And the ghosts didn't know that when they were doing wrong to people, they were doing wrong to Jesus. 
They didn't realize that the undercover boss was right before them every day, concealing himself in the likeness of his disciples, particularly his poor and needy disciples. When Jesus says, my brothers, he's always referring to Christians. But I think that this also has broader application in terms of the way that we deal with the people who are in our lives. Jesus lives in such union with his people that to mistreat them is to mistreat him. Do you remember in Acts chapter 9 when the, the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? When he's on the road to Damascus, he's persecuting Christians, and Jesus stops him in that road. He shows up in his glory, blinding glory, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting them? He says, why are you persecuting me? Because how you treat Jesus' people is how you treat Jesus. Let me get it on the ground a little further. How you treat my wife, Vanessa, is how you treat me. And you can't possibly think that you could have a pattern of mistreating my wife and that you and I are going to be on good terms. In fact, there'll probably be some furniture moving off of here if I find out you mistreat my wife. I mean, I, I haven't been a pastor all my life, all right? <laughs> but you get it. How you treat my wife is how you treat me. But let me get this on the ground pastorally for you. How you treat the Christian people in your life, especially the poor and marginalized ones, is how you treat Jesus. How you treat your friends is how you treat Jesus. Are you flaky? How would you handle conflicts with your friends if you knew that you were dealing with Jesus? Would you be passive aggressive with them? You know how it goes. You're mad with someone. Maybe it's your roommate. And you don't want to say anything because you don't want to be in a confrontation. But you walk around the house like... slamming stuff and they say what's wrong nothing right <sighs> so annoyed with Jesus right now right? how you treat your friends is how you treat Jesus if you're married in here how you treat your spouse is how you treat Jesus Jesus the toilet seats up again I'm gonna take you out Jesus you're just being too sensitive Oh, I didn't mean to step on anyone's toes in here. <laughs> Jesus, you're really wearing me out right now. Jesus, I don't, I, I don't know about this thing. I don't know if I want to be with you anymore. How you treat your spouse is how you treat Jesus. Now I'm really going to step on some toes. How you treat your kids is how you treat Jesus. Jesus, let me find one more Cheerio under this table, and I'm going to take you out, right? Oh, Jesus, I told you to see. That's why the milk is spilled, Jesus, because you don't listen, Jesus, right? Go to your room, Jesus. Wait till I get a hold of you. Think about all the ways that we deal. You know what? Some people don't like children. <laughs> For real. 
But the problem isn't the children. The problem is you. I get people, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to serve in nursery. Oh, why not? I don't like kids. Mm. Let me translate that. I don't want to serve in nursery. Why not? I don't like Jesus. Jesus got stinky diapers. Jesus slobbers. Jesus cries. I really, how you treat the children of God's church, the covenant children of God's church, is how you treat Jesus. Do you see what Jesus is doing in this passage? He's really putting us on the hook here. He's putting us on the hook. And I want you to notice something about the passage, y'all. Notice how the focus is not on the bad things that the goats have done to others. It's on the focus is on the good things that they refuse to do. The good things that they failed to do. And look how simple those things were. Offer some food, give some drink, offer some clothing, visit, taking care of people. Basic, easy, one-on-one stuff. The focus is on sins of omission, that they ignored Jesus as he came to them in the form of the people around them. These are simple things. Listen, y'all, the text shows us the urgency of neighbor love. It's not optional, right? You see this, right? The whole context is the context of that final day. It's not optional. It's not for those who are interested in this kind of thing. One of the things that drives me crazy all the time when I go to other churches and I talk about cross-cultural love and I try to encourage people in, in, in terms of neighbor love, one of the things that always burns me up is I'll, I, I'll often get people who will do this kind of thing. Like, man, that's so cool. Like, that cross-cultural is Russ's hobby. I love that he has a heart for that. That's so cool that that's his thing. And I'm like, this ain't my thing. Like, I didn't create this. I didn't come up with this. This is not unique to me. I think this is what the scriptures are holding out for the church. This is not a hobby. It's not optional. This is not like ketchup. This is the entree. You see? That's what the text is saying. This is of the essence of what being a Christian looks like. This is what faith worked out looks like. This is what the life that has truly been touched by grace looks like. This is what the life that has been invaded by mercy looks like. This is the acid test of whether or not you have the real thing. Does it show up? And this kind of treatment of Jesus as he comes to us in the form of the poor, the marginalized, and the needy among his people. This is central. But you know what this text does? It exposes us. Because if we're honest, we all know that more often than not, we look like goats rather than sheep. And this should sober us. It should sober us that oftentimes our lives look more like the lives of the goats than the lives of the sheep. But the Lord Jesus is going to judge. He's going to judge. Now, here's the interesting thing. In our contemporary culture, I think it's interesting that a lot of people 
are very motivated to see those bad, wicked, evil people out there judged. They would want to see them judged. But here's, here's the thing. If you're going to be consistent, then you know that if God is judging the evil out there, he's ultimately coming around to judge the evil in here. And the question that all of us must answer is this. What are you going to do when he comes to judge? What can you do about the evil in your own heart? What can you do about the sin that plagues you? What can you do if your life looks more like the goat than the sheep? Is the message then try harder? No. Is the message then, oh, I got to clean up my act and I got to start getting my my stuff together? No, that's not going to do it. That's not going to get you right. That's not going to prepare you for judgment day. So what are we going to do? What is the hope for those whose lives looks more like the lives of the goat than the life of the sheep? We must we must turn to the good news of God's grace. Do you know what the good news of God's grace is in this passage? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived the life of a sheep toward you and I so that he could pardon goats like you and I. That's the good news. This passage is most fully and robustly lived out by Jesus. Can't you see? When we were hungry, Jesus became for us the bread from heaven. When we were thirsty, he became for us the living water. When we were strangers, he rolled out the red carpet of the kingdom and welcomed us in. When we were naked and exposed and vulnerable and weak, Jesus clothed us in his righteousness divine. When we were sick, he didn't just visit us from glory. He became the great physician who heals us. And when we were in prison, prisons of our own making, the prisons of addiction, the prisons of sin, the prisons of evil. That is when Christ came and broke us free. He liberated us and set us free to live a new kind of life. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus isn't just the chief shepherd. He's also the true sheep. And because he is the true sheep, he is able to transform those who live like goats. Do you see what we're saying here? It is the gospel that transforms us so that we become the real deal and that will be revealed on that final day. Our faith would have been translated into a life of loving Jesus as he shows up before us in the people around us. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus provides grace to cover our failures and grace to transform us into neighbor-loving people. Grace is no small thing. In fact, there's actually no such thing as grace. What there is is the Lord Jesus in all of his goodness toward us and his faithfulness to us. It's Jesus for us. It's Jesus over us. It's Jesus under us, supporting us. It's Jesus on our right. It's Jesus on our left. It's Jesus in the eyes of those who see us. Jesus in the mouths of those who speak of us. It's that benediction of St. Patrick. It's in that way that grace becomes real to us. That grace transforms. 
We've already said this morning that we all want to be judged, no matter how much we say you can't judge me. We just want a favorable judgment. And the good news of the gospel is that we can get that favorable judgment by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that, that's why it's to the glory of God alone. But this is part of our heritage, y'all. This is part of our Christian heritage. The saints through the ages and around the globe have given us lots of wisdom and instruction about what this looks like. How does this message, this anticipation shape us? How does it shape your life when you know that you're going to have to stand before Jesus one day to answer for the way that you've treated people? I'm going to give you one example. There was a, a group of monks that were, that were led by an old school cat named Benedict of Nursia. And Benedict drew up a sort of way of life from the scriptures for these monks to adhere to. And in Benedict's rule, his, his set of like rules for the life of their community, he has a chapter on the welcome of strangers. And this was the practice. Here's the deal. Along, along with this Benedictine way, here's the truth. Before there were hotels, before there were Hilton's or Motel 6, when people were traveling in the ancient world, you know what they were looking for? They were looking for a church. They were looking for a church or a monastery because back then they knew whether they were Christians or non-Christians, whether they were rich or poor, whether they were black, brown, white, whatever. They knew that if they got to a church, they would be welcomed. They would be fed. They would be protected. And that they would leave with more than they came with. And one of the communities that lived that out was the Benedictines. And they would have these, you know, in, in, the, in the monastery, they would have these, these people that stood at the gates. They were called porters. And when they saw a stranger approaching, do you know what they did? They would bow down and then they would lay prostrate as the stranger came. Because they believed that they were welcoming Jesus in that stranger. And then they would rise up. And they would pray with that stranger, trusting the spirit was going to give discernment as to whether this was a person of good intent or ill intent. And then they would welcome them in. They would feed them. They would take care of them. They would protect them. And then they would send them off on their journey with food. Now, here's the deal. The church used to be known as the place where you would find welcome the place where you would find nourishment, and the place where you would find protection, the place where you would be filled and sent out with more than you came with. I don't think we're known that way anymore. But wouldn't it be amazing if we were known that way once again? <laughs> it starts with this kind of vision, that every person we encounter is an opportunity for us to love Jesus concretely to treat them as if they were Jesus, to honor them in that way, to respect them in that way, to speak to them in that way, to use your words in that way. It also reminds me of that, that famous quote by C.S. Lewis. 
where he talks about the idea that there are no ordinary people. He says, every day you're encountering people who one day will become a being so glorious that you would be tempted to bow down and worship them or a being so hideous and grotesque that you would never be able to envision it even in your worst nightmare. And he says, all day long, we're helping one another along to one of the two courses. He says, all, this is the case in all of our play, in all of our politics, in, in all of the activities of our lives. He says, there are no ordinary people. You've never met a mere mortal. What Lewis is saying is that we need to take our anthropology more seriously. The dignity of the image bearers around us and on top of that, we need to take our Christology more seriously. That Jesus is present in the people around us right now. Church Father Chrysostom said this. He said this to his congregation, and this was, this was that hot fire, okay? He said this. He said, if you cannot find Christ in the beggar at the church door, you will not find him in the cup at the Lord's table. That's a word. If you can't find Christ in the beggar at the church door, he says, you're not going to find him in the worship service. You're not looking for him. You're blind to him. If you can't find him here. What Jesus do you read about in the scriptures? The one who lived in solidarity with those who today, frankly, many of us don't have much time for. It's a sobering and stunning word. And the question is this. What would your life and relationships look like if this passage shaped your thinking from this point forward? You need to use some sacred imagination, okay? You need to use some sacred imagination. When you wake up in the morning, remember, the most important question for you is not what do I have to do, but who must I become? And I must, become, I must become the kind of person that sees Jesus in every encounter. And think about this. There is no loss. Well, what if that person isn't a Christian? No harm, no foul. You've loved them like you've been called to love them in the neighbor love call. There's no loss in loving them like Jesus and honoring them in that way. And I promise you this. No sacrifices, no sacrifices you've made, no efforts you've made. On the day when you stand before Jesus and you lay eyes on him, I promise you, you will have no regrets about any efforts that you made to love others as, as if they were Jesus. No regrets. The only thing you will regret that day is that you spent so little time doing it. That you spent so little focus upon how to improve in it. On that day, it will relativize all of our other trivial pursuits. It will, that day is going to bring the great clarity. All of this is going to reveal who we truly are. This is not works righteousness that Jesus is talking about. This is about the evidence of a life of faith showing up in the treatment of other people. It's about the evidence of a life that has been steeped in grace. It's about the evidence of a life that truly has been touched by grace. 
That's what Jesus is saying. At the end, no one can fool Jesus. You might be able to fool your peers. You can't fool Jesus. He sees it all. He knows it all. He knows you better than you know yourself. He will not be fooled. And so you know what the safest course is? To trust in Jesus and to, and to give your greatest attention to actually being the real deal. Majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. That's what we ought to give our hearts and our minds to. And we will not regret it. We will not regret it. Any of the disappointments that we face in this life in an effort to follow Jesus, we will not regret it. We will get it back a hundredfold. It's like that old missionary. It's like that old missionary said he was... Uh, he had gone through a lot of suffering on the mission field. He'd laid out all of the things, the trials and the tribulations, all of the hard, heartaches and hardships. And his conclusion was, but I never made a sacrifice. See the thinking? I never made a sacrifice. I never really gave up anything. I became all the more the gainer for following Christ. That's what I'm saying tonight. I think that's what Jesus is saying to us. And remember this, I'm going to repeat it. The world may outthink us. The world may outstrategize us, but the world must not outlove us. And that's what this passage is all about. So let's pray that God would give us the eyes to see. And listen, when you don't treat people as if you were encountering Jesus in the moment, Learn to repent quickly and ask their forgiveness and to seek restoration there and to get back on the course. Don't throw your hands in the air. It's going to take practice, y'all. How you spend your days is how you spend your life. And to get this into your rhythm, to get it into your practice, the Benedictines, they took it pretty extreme, right? I don't know what your friends might do if when they were approaching, you bowed down in front of them. But that was their, th listen, all it was, it, that was their way of practicing this and getting it. Because your body is also one of the ways in which you learn. You learn bodily too, not just intellectually. So there may be practices that you need to take up in order to get this into your life. Think on that. Use your imagination, but most of all, pray it into your life. And remember the words of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass said, prayer has feet. <laughs> it's no trite thing, but prayer does have feet. Pray it into your life and ask the Lord for the grace to live up into this so that on that day, you will hear, well done. That essentially what I'm telling you is live your life to hear those two words, well done. And well done was not you performed it well. It's that you lived into the life of grace and trusted me and it changed you. You became something more of the vision that I always had for you. Well done. Let's live for that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We would be in the dark if you didn't speak to us. We wouldn't know which way to go. But we're grateful that you have given us clarity on 
matters of life and death, issues of life and death. And we recognize tonight that we have confronted a challenging word that we need to take seriously. And Lord, I pray that tonight those who are feeling shaken by this would know that if they come to you with their nothing, they will get your everything. They need to come with empty hands and open mouth to be fed by you. I pray that we would have a sober mind about passages like these and that we wouldn't quickly rationalize them away, but that we would let the story work on us and that we would spend time in meditation and reflection to imagine it and that we would be changed by your word. I pray that you, Spirit, would work on the hearts of these friends of mine and work on my own heart. Help us to reclaim once again that reputation of being the place where people will find welcome no matter who they are, no matter what baggage they bring, no matter what kind of trials they've suffered, no matter what kind of traumas they've had in their lives, no matter what ways they've been abused or mistreated. Lord, I pray that they would know us, the church, as the place where they will find welcome and nourishment and protection and provision. Make it so, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.